Um, we are in Luke chapter 6. We're continuing through the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 6. We're going to read verses 20 through um, chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, we're, but we're only focusing on a small section from 37 to 46. So we're, but every week we're reading the whole Sermon on the Mount to keep it into perspective, to realize the context, and then we'll harness that will focus in on a little section and go through that. Um, but as you're turning there to Luke chapter six, you know, the progressive dinner, there was a lot of people kind of a lot of moving parts and, and it was just a great time. And a lot of people helped out. I made the tragic mistake of appetizers. I think it like means like, it's like your warm up, you know, just to get a little bit of food in there. Well, I left the appetizer house with my stomach. I thought my stomach lining was going to tear open. Yeah. <laughs> and then we went to the second house and then there was like burritos. And so it's like, well, I'm not going to let this whole stomach issue like get in the way of eating more. And so I was thoroughly stuffed. I still think I'm in a food coma trying to wake up this morning. It was a great time. And thanks to everybody who uh, uh, helped get everything going. So it was a great time. And we'll, we'll have another one as Brett warned us, whether you like it or not, we're doing another one. That's what first annual means. Um, so join with me as we read the Luke um, chapter six, beginning in verse 20. And he turned his gaze towards his disciples and he began to say, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the son of man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he's been fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure in his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against the house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this word, Lord. We ask as we go through it, Father, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning. Father, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, help us to hear your voice. Lord, we need help, and we come to you asking for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this text, this sermon happened really quick. A lot of times there's so much depth and information in here that people could take a year studying the Sermon on the Mount. Books are written on this sermon, um, which is good because the stuff is pretty deep to understand. But at the same time, we lose the focus that when Jesus spoke this, In context, we know that he was up the night before praying all night. As the sun came up, the crowds found him. Of this big crowd of people that was there, he called 12 people as his disciples. He immediately found some flat ground, put the Sea of Galilee behind him, and he began speaking to the crowd. He spoke this maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but it wasn't very long. And then he immediately goes into Capernaum and goes into the next story. And so what he says in this sermon as recorded by luke i've kind of broken into four different sections the first section is the first six verses and this is the total flipping the value system of those who follow christ upside down from the world's standards everything that we think even as christians we struggle with this i people come up to me and they say how you doing brother like well, I ate a lot of food last night. I'm well fed. I have some money in my bank account. I have my friends. I'm good relationship with all my friends. I'm blessed. And Jesus says, no, it's just the opposite. And it's like, oh, that doesn't, oh, I don't like the way this doesn't make sense. And then the next section, which leading up to this passage, the week before I said, oh, whatever I preach on, I, you know, I deal with all week. I struggle with, you know, this, this sermon on the Mount is difficult. Lo and behold, as I was speaking, that was the Navy SEAL team, you know, taking out bin Laden. And so I had to deal with that over the last two weeks. Um, I did not see all of this coming in the midst of this and the, the media attention I received leading up to Sunday to have to preach on Mother's Day. I, but I say to you here, love your enemies. It's kind of funny how God works in my life sometimes. Then today I have to preach on do not judge. 
Last week was about this radical sort of loving of others outside of our little circles. This week is going to be this radical sort of self-examination. And in the midst of this, there's a pastor on the East Coast who claimed to be a seal. I didn't see this one coming. And so I have the media came to me and interviewed me about what I thought as a pastor about this guy who's a pastor who claimed to be a seal. Let's just say that there was a lot of opportunities for me to be very judgmental. But I'm having to preach on this. So I'm like, okay, Lord, like, how do I handle this in the way that you want me to handle this? And as I learned this week, as I'm going through this, this passage, often finishing a sermon, what I on occasion, what I'll get or what I'll hear is, oh, I really wish so-and-so was here because they needed to hear this one. I mean, I think it. I'm like, oh, man, this is a great one. This one that's coming up. I sure hope so-and-so is up here and God's like hitting me over the back of the head. No, you need to hear this. This is like God's putting the spotlight on us, the huge divine x-ray machine, and he wants us to examine our own hearts today. So today as we're going through this and you start thinking, oh, so-and-so Stop yourself and think, no, I need to hear this. I need to, I need to deal with this. So this deals with Jesus's, this, this section dealing with Jesus wanting to expose our own hearts so that we stay right before him. And then next week, we're going to look at the final section, this call of radical following after Jesus. The, why do you call me Lord, Lord, yet you don't do this? So he's going to challenge us to follow him with greater intensity. And so we come to the first section here that says, do not judge and you will not be judged and do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. This is a verse that everybody knows. People who are not Christians, who don't go to church, who've never stepped foot, never opened, stepped foot in church or opened a Bible ever in their lives. And you say something to them in love. We all, I've been there. The Bible says, don't judge, brother. You're judging me. Don't judge. But then the reality is, hey, aren't you judging my judging? <laughs> Like you're, you're actually judging me in my, what I'm saying. And so is Jesus saying this and why we don't have time to, to fully unpack this. The issue isn't about not judging. The issue is not about being so critical that all you are is pointing the finger at everybody in anger. And I've had people like this in my life that if I get an email and I see their name, my heart sort of drops and I go, oh, what I do this time. How did I miss the mark this time? Or you're around them and all they want to talk about is how everybody else is a mess. And it's like, I just can't. Like nobody appointed, God didn't appoint you to be his cop to write tickets to the world. And Jesus is, Jesus is, is, is going to examine this. And while there is a place for judging, we're not going to examine it. But Matthew 18 it's up here. Matthew 18. This is when Jesus starts giving instructions for when we are going to, um, we have an issue with somebody. How do we go about it? Then in Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, listen, when I told you like all this stuff, I wasn't talking about non-believers. Like non-believers, people who don't know Jesus, they need Jesus. And that's, that's our message to them. But to those within the church, if they say, listen, Jesus is my Lord, I want to follow after him, and they're doing a bunch of stuff that is clear violation of scripture, then we have an obligation to judge and and to go before them. But the heart isn't judging to condemnation. The spirit is judging in the heart of restoration and reconciliation that they can get right with the Lord. And I do want to look at 
um, Matthew chapter 18. Because I think Matthew chapter 18 conveys the heart of this passage. I had an aha moment in, in, in last service. I referenced a parable. And I'm like, man, where's that parable? I got to look it up. And it turns out that parable that helps illustrate what Jesus is trying to convey to us in today's message is found right here in Matthew 18. So Matthew 18, starting in verse 15 through 20, which I listed here through 22, this is the great um, passage where Jesus says, listen, if you got a problem with somebody, if somebody's sinning, what you need to do is as an individual, you go to them by yourself, you pull them aside and you say, listen, you're violating scripture here and you have an issue and I love you and I want to help you and I'm not better than you. I'm not, not condemning you, but this is a problem and I want to help you work this out. Then we're told to give them some space and then if they don't after like, you know, it doesn't say, but I think it's like a week, a month, who knows? Normally when I've ever been confronted in my life, it doesn't go, oh, you're right, you're so right on brother. It takes a while to kind of like, you know what, is there truth in this? It kind of hurts, you know, but maybe I was off base and I do need to repent and I need to fix the issue. And it takes some time. But if that doesn't happen, then you're supposed to bring a witness to that person and go and confront them. And then with two people go. And then if after some time that doesn't work, then you're supposed to bring it before the church. Now, some people believe, which I really don't agree with only in certain situations, when it says bring it before the church, like to literally bring it before the church. And to let them be exposed for everything. And I don't think that necessarily goes with the heart of restoration. But if the church knows, the exceptions would be if something was done like a gross violation to a child or something where there's a threat to other people, then you kind of have to know. But we're not going to go look at all of this. And so then there's the great verse that is used by pastors all the time, out of context, out of order. It, it doesn't say, verse 20 and it says, for where two or three have gathered together my name, I am there in their midst. And people use this to say, well, if you're praying and you have two or three of you together, then the prayer is like super duper effective. Well, Jesus said, wherever you go, I'm there with you, low to the end of the age. This has to do with, con- this has to do with church discipline. If, so- if two or three of you are there, then you followed this order and you have to confront this person. Jesus is saying, I'm there with you in this sort of confrontation. And then Peter says, but Lord, how many times we got to forgive somebody once, twice? Like, when can we stop forgiving? And Jesus says 70 times 70 or seven times 70, whatever it is. Uh, Basically, he's saying this is like infinity plus infinity. We you've been forgiven much. So you forgive. And then he keeps going and, and he tells this parable. And it begins right after this. Um, let's see. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, in verse 24, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife, children, and all that he had, and, re- and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me. I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him of the debt. This is huge. This is there's no way this guy could pay him back. His whole family, everything was to be sold into further slavery to pay the king back. Guy falls down and says, listen, be patient with me. I'll I'll like whatever. The king feels compassion, says, you know what? You're free of all this debt. I'm going to let you go. 
Then check out verse 28. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owned him a hundred denarii. So we go from like this huge number. In modern day terms, it's like the guy had like a $50,000 debt to his boss. There's no way he could pay it. Boss totally forgives him. Then he sees one of his co-workers that he spotted five bucks to two weeks ago. Says, ah, that's right, you owe me five bucks. And he seized him and began to choke him. Pay me back, you little rascal. I need that five bucks. How could you not pay me back that five bucks? But he was unwilling and he went and threw him in prison and should, and, until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came to report to their Lord all that happened. Then summoning his Lord, he said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave all, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay what was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And so this is the whole issue of today's passage found in Luke chapter 6, which you can go back to. Clearly, scripture says that there's a there's a place for Christians to judge, not being judgmental, but a place for us to hold each other accountable with our walk with the Lord. It's a thing I hate the most in being a pastor. But I'm commanded to do so. And so when I when I ever have to confront somebody, the reality is, is man, I know what like how much trouble I got in all like how far off I am from the Lord. And so I approach the person as, dude, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I've been in all kinds. I've been confronted. And you know what? I want to help you work through this so that you can repent. You can be restored back into fellowship that you can have this. But see, religion doesn't do this. And we're going to look at this story and we'll see that there's a bunch of Pharisees standing on the sidelines. Verse 6 says that they were there. Verse 7 in Luke chapter 6 says that they were there just waiting to make accusation of him, looking for an opportunity to condemn him. And so he's trying to rid this, just this critical spirit where you think you're the world's cop for God. To those who have been forgiven much, they become forgiving people. And so he moves from this, we're going to unpack the forgiveness, and he goes into verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Don't worry if you're visiting. This is not where I'm going to turn this into. Uh, let's get out your checkbooks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I heard somebody say this week, the uh, best illustration I've heard in a long time. See, when I read this passage, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. All I hear is the voice of the televangelist twisting this. I can't even read this in my mind. And I'm like, oh, I got to teach on this. I don't like this. And the guy said that these people who use the verse in this way picture God as this big pinata filled with cash and money, a bunch of idols for us. And the way to crack open this pinata of wealth and riches and good luck and good fortune and, you know, all your everything solved is with the stick of you giving us money. And then we then as you give me millions of dollars and I get Lear jets and I get all this stuff, then as you give, 
you're going to crack open that pinata. And so the whole heart of giving, they've manipulated it to not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is talking about being generous. I totally believe in tithing. For the record, and tithing is not an issue, and I hate being a pastor. I wish I could just be a, like a Christian on the sideline that wasn't the pastor of the church talking to this next part. Because So I'm going to kind of talk to you about this from my own personal life when I was not a pastor. Just Joe Smo Christian trying to figure things out. Somewhere along the lines, I'd heard about tithing. Now, I, I cannot point in scripture anywhere that says, as a Christian, you have to tithe. Can't do it. I've done studies, but I got real bad news for you. Like, it's not even in the Old Testament. It's not exactly as clear. It's not just like that thou shalt tithe 10% of your thing. If you start unraveling the Old Testament, you're going to come to a horrible realization that it was like 33% or 40% of like what you were expected to give. And then when you start looking at the New Testament, there's stuff like sacrificial giving, like stuff that is like, and this isn't put your checkbooks away. This is not at all like for that. We've already taken the offering. The offering's done. We're not doing it. This is discipleship. And in my life, when I came to Christ at like 22, by that point, I'd been in the Navy for four years, long enough to have met all of the guys. It's easy financing for E1 and above. You know, all the military guys are chuckling right now everywhere. Buy that new Jeep. Don't worry about paying it back. Easy payments. We'll automatically take it out of your paycheck. You don't even have to worry about it. And I'd accrued a bunch of debt by the time I was like young. And then suddenly I became a Christian and somewhere along the lines, this whole tithing thing. Now, the best guy I heard explain tithing, I actually like what he had to say. Hey, Kennegraph, we don't agree on a whole lot, but a lot of stuff we agree on. Um, and he described tithing as training wheels for giving, which makes a whole lot of sense to me. And so I decided somewhere in my Mark of spiritual growth, I said, I'm going to start tithing. So I started doing it. It was, pa- it was painful because I had bills to pay. And I was like, wait, so I'm like going to write this first and it's supposed to work out. So I started giving. And then in tithe, well, I started tithing. Very, very, you know, I, it, was, it was, you give me a rule and I'm going to do it precisely. And so I started tithing. I mean, t- calculator. I got paid this much money down to the cents. What's 10%? And I figured out, I wrote that check and I gave. And I'm like, all right, Lord. And then I realized as I started doing this, then I, re- I thought in my mind, see, I gave 10%. And I thought that 90% was for me to blow to spend however. And somewhere in this journey of praying about the 10%, because it was a faith thing every single time I got paid, Twice a month on the 1st and the 15th, whether I deserved it or not, I would write out my paycheck. I was in the military. Paycheck's not connected to your work. It's just you just get paid. It's not. So sometimes I deserve it. Sometimes I didn't deserve it. And, uh, and so I would do this. Then all of a sudden through this journey, God started showing me like, Gunner, I know you're given 10%, but do you realize that everything I give to you is from me? And then suddenly through the tithing, I started becoming more responsible, saying, man, I'm just a manager of this stuff that God's entrusted me with. And then through this journey, I got totally out of debt. And it was like there was freedom to start giving. And then when Ann and I were engaged, 
See, at this point, in hindsight, I don't know, I think my heart, I think I was still trying to show off and woo the lady, you know, who was like, I, I was still like, I'd landed a pretty sweet wife, you know, I was, here I was, I was only a baby Christian, like, you know, the ink was still drying for my tattoos sort of thing that she didn't know about while we were engaged. <laughs> I really was heading towards Jesus, like I was really serious, but I married a missionary kid, her dad was a pastor at the church. And I was really like, I'm, I'm all bored with this. And then we, when we got married, we we're like, you know what? Let's tell people we don't want presents. Your presence is present enough. And we don't want money. Don't give anything. I don't know why. I think I was just immature at the time. <laughs> like, people are just trying to help you get your, your, you know, your, to get going with your new life. And, and around this time, we had a dear friend, Krista, who was going to be a missionary in the Middle East as, and to the Muslim world. And we said somewhere, I don't, know if, I don't know how it all happened, but why don't we just take all the money that we get from our... Because people are going to give us money no matter what. So why don't we just take it and give it to her to send her off to the mission field? Ah, that's a great idea. Well, I was expecting like 40 bucks to come in, maybe 100 bucks. And then, like, we got married, and you get back from your honeymoon, and you start going through this stuff, and, like, man, there were, like, significant checks, significant cash. And it was, like, it was around $2,000, which was a lot of money. Like, I mean, it still is a lot of money. I talk about, like, it wasn't a lot of money. It was a lot of money. It still is. Like, if somebody just gives me $2,000, it's like, whoa. And then we are telling, we're like, this is, like, 2100 whatever it was. What did we say? Did we say we were going to tithe off of this? Like, now we're married. <laughs> now, are we... Sh- God would... He's a God of grace. <laughs> and we're like, you, you know, this is all... And I don't know how much I vocalized or how much was just inside of me, you know? And it's like, no, we said we'd do this. So then I, at that moment, then wrote the biggest check of my entire life for the amount, put it in the envelope, seized it up, went down to the apartment, but like mailbox you know where there's a whole row of little things where you go in and then there's the drop box and then i have the envelope slide it in slide it out she trusts me she'll never know if i just like you know (laughs) and then it dropped and i was like oh should i get in there and try to fish it out should i wait here till the mailman comes and explain to him that this i as accident and i was like okay no just go check the mail and i go and check the mail there's two weird envelopes. There's two of them. It's like back in the, like when the IRS would send you a check, like the government checks, although it wasn't tax. I mean, it was before taxes. We got married in February. And I opened these envelopes, and it was like almost the same amount of money that we just slipped into this box. And I thought, man, did I take a trip? Is this like late per diem coming back? And I'm like, I probably should go to admin to ask, but I'm not going to ask any questions because they might want it back. So I'm just going to kind of go by faith that it was was in my name. It wasn't like I found it from somebody else. And I'm not saying that as you give, that this will happen. The, The issue here is I think that God wants us to be generous, to walk around with open hands because he's a good giving God. And then as we give, he says, you know what? I trusted you with a little bit. You handled that responsibly. Don't worry. I'll give you, I'll bless you. He might bless you not in monetary ways, or he might give you more money to say, hey, I trusted you with, you did fine. I'm going to give you more. Start blessing people. This is when you see somebody that's in need. You think, well, I can give I can give to them. Let me help them. I just want to be generous. You know, God's given me so much. I want to bless them. 
And then as I've gone through my life, there are people that have had like just impacts in my life. Some of us know a couple, George and Evie Farrington. This is a couple who have given everything to the Lord. And to see God's faithfulness in their life, it brings tears to my eyes, thinking about it. And hearing them tell their story about how when they retired, they came back to Valley Center in the 90s. They wanted to move to Hideaway Lake. They were there. They were trying to figure out how they were going to finance after, you know, 40 years in the ministry, living in parsonages with no money. They've just given everything away. And they, uh, they were trying to finance the, the thing. And the, the guy who was financing them didn't tell them. And he called the old church. He's like, guys, you probably, I don't know that you're aware of this, but they're trying to buy a house here. They don't have the credit. There's no way they can pull this off, not on Social Security. And it just doesn't seem right to me. And then the church had a little meeting, and the church just wrote a check and like gave it to pay for it. And to hear George and everything, God's just so faithful to them. But I think that the issue here is that as you realize, you know, God's faithful. And I'm all for saving for the rainy day, you know, investing. I'm not saying any of that stuff is bad. But see, my spirit... I think, man, I'm a hoarder. I mean, when it comes to food, I was raised in an abusive home, and I was like number six child of seven kids. And so, like, if you didn't, like, battle for your food, then you weren't going to, like, you had to fight for it. And money, I'm a hoarder, and I'm a a worry wart by nature. It's not about planning for the future. It's like, oh, Lord, you know. 17 years from now, I could be driving on the grapevine and get in a horrific traffic accident and encounter like all kind of medical bills. So I shouldn't give this guy a granola bar because, you know, <laughs> like that's my heart. And, God, and, it, and it becomes not a, a trust issue with God. And then as we give and what I've seen about giving people is in when you give. Like it does like you have relationships and people like just to see how people work. And this is what God wants out of us. And this whole press down, shaken together, this is just this idea of like that God is going to take care of you. When they would go shopping back then and you would go and you'd have your little bag or whatever and you wanted rice and then they'd scoop in the rice or, and they'd fill it up or whatever, corn pot, whatever they had. Then they would shake the bag so it would settle. They'd, sh- they'd shake it around. We don't really do this anymore. There's a couple situations that I've kind of this week as I've been praying about this where I realized where I really like when the person does it the right way. The first place is Chipotle. I love Chipotle. The only thing I love more than Chipotle is guacamole. And so, and I'm not a vegetarian, but so when I go to Chipotle, I get the vegetarian burrito because it comes with guacamole. I'm too cheap to get the meat one and pay the extra $2 for the guacamole. So I'm fine being a vegetarian at Chipotle for the guacamole. And every time I go to Chipotle, you kind of like, for those of you who haven't been there, you kind of walked in the line, you kind of point out what you want, and then we get to the avocado. And there, there's like desperate pleading in my heart, trying to like send signals to the person like, please, your manager won't care. And they reach the big spoon in there and it's like heaping with guacamole. And I'm like, just, just go straight to the burrito. And then almost without a doubt, what they do is they like clink it somehow. I think they're mandatory required to clink it twice. Like it's a clink and then half of the stuff falls off. They clink it again. And then I start during this time, I'm praying like, please be a weak clink. Don't get the good clink. (laughs) It's like, just put it on there. The other place is French fries. Go into like McDonald's and you order a French fry. Then the kid goes back there. He doesn't realize like, I mean, 
we're in a recession. French fries, you know, we need our French fries. You ask for a large or whatever. And they do a, they like short stroke their scooper and they put it in there. And it's like, no, 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 no. I got good information from Don. I guess five, five guys burgers. They take a cup and then they put it in there and they hammer it down. Then they put another scoop in there and hammer it down. Then they put it into a bag. Then they take two more scoops and douse it on top. That's where I'm going next time. But that's the picture. Like, listen, as you give, as your as your hands are open, God is going to. And it's not about getting more. This is the it's not giving for the sake of idolatry to get more money. It's the sake because God has blessed you so much that we want to share the blessing that God has given. And so it's just about being a gracious person. And I don't know how God is stirring you in this. But he goes on to say. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? It's a rhetorical question. The first is, no, a blind man cannot guide a blind man. If they do, the second question, yes, they both will fall into a pit. So the picture here, you have a blind guy. And the bet, like, let's just put ourselves down on center city. The police department doesn't want you to know, but the speed limit there is 55. There's no way you can really do 55 there. But it's a fast road and can you imagine if you see a blind guy walk up with no stick no dog and he's like going he's trying to okay, hear a car i don't hear anything and there just happens to be it's all a bunch of toyota hybrids so they're really quiet <laughs> he's about to go and he's going to get plowed by cars and then another guy who's blind walks up to him oh hey man you're good to go i'll take you let's go come on we'll just go across They're going to get killed. And here Jesus is pointing out this blindness. He's pointing to the Pharisees that are standing there in verse 7. That Kind of in this context, they've pointed out, hey, listen, the Pharisees are there looking to accuse him. But that was the day before. In chapter 4, I think it is, in that section in in, uh, 4, Luke chapter 4, 18, when Jesus goes to Nazareth and he sits down and he reads that verse from Isaiah, one of the verses in there, it talked about, um, 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 that's my stalling, (laughs) recovery of sight to the blind. Later in Matthew 15, verses 10 through 14, the story here is, Let's just go there because I'm in trouble if I start trying to quote the story. Matthew 15, uh, verse 10. Jesus here is going to refer to the Pharisees as the blind man leading the blind. In verse 10, after Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand. It is not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. It is not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Very similar to what he's talking about on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus like preached the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to see going through Luke. He's going to give all sorts of practical illustrations and examples that unpack the Sermon on the Mount to them. And then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? See, Jesus had spoke this before he comes back. He's like, man, they were all offended when, when they heard that you said this, that, that it's not what you put in your mouth because they're talking about the dietary law and all of this stuff. And Jesus says, it's not what you put in, it's what what comes out of the heart. It's the innermost of who you are that defiles you. 
And they said, you know what? They were really angry when you said that to them. And then Jesus answers in verse 13, and he said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. Talking about the Pharisees. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Sounds very familiar to Luke chapter 6. And so he's saying, listen, careful who you follow. You disciples, you're going to be the future leaders of the church. You're going to be following people. Careful who you follow. And this applies to us. Because as you follow people, you become like your teacher. And he goes on to say, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he's been fully trained will be like his teacher. These Pharisees that are, that are bringing the law onto the people and not the way that God intentioned, you're not, if you're following them and you're their disciple, you're not going to raise above them. You're just going to become like them. And there's great caution to us in this. He goes on to, I love Jesus' teaching. He uses pictures, stories, illustrations to bring things alive. And he starts talking about verse 41. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? I don't know if Jesus was like smiling and joking and, and being funny at this point, but the story and the illustration he uses is hilarious. See the speck? Imagine you go like here, we have bushes around here, and you're to use one of those little like, you know, the straight line ones, the ones. And then when you rake it all up, even after you rake it up, there's always like little tiny twigs left over. And you, I normally just leave them. But if I'm working with the brothers like in the Hispanic ministry that take, like when you come do yard work with them, they don't mess around. They get down there and they start picking up. And I'm like, man, what? Do we got to pick up those little things? And they're like, yes, you got to pick up those little things. And so you're down there. <laughs> Alberto, no, it's true. You got to pick them all up. And that, those little, that's the twig. If you go to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was common, you go to Genesis chapter 8, verse 11. It's the picture following the flood when Noah kept sending the dove out. In verse 11 of chapter 8 of Genesis, when the dove comes back with an olive branch in its mouth, this is the same word, the speck in the eye. Tiny little thing. Now, this log, I'm not a construction guy. But there are beams that are like the structural like support beams. They, like they say on them, like when you go up into the attic, it says these are like support beams. This was a construction term for like the I-beams that would be used in the foundation of a house or in the structure of it. Like huge things. And so, so the picture is, is hilarious. He says, why do you look at this speck that's in your brother eye but not notice the log that's in your own eye or your head? It's like, how can you like see that when you have a two by four that's 16 feet long coming out of your face? He says, or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck that's out in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye. See, I really, I realized I should have brought a log with me to church today, but this is the best I could come up with. I'm going to use Richard as an illustration. He's going great. I know, okay, I won't make it longer, but let's pretend that this is really long and I'm running around. This is a little bit easier to hold in my head. Good. Oh, hey, dude, you got a, a speck in your eye. See, I can't even see him. He, he's already done. Let me get this. <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be sitting there going, dude, you're making me nervous. Like, why don't you deal with that log that's in your face before you? Like, there is a problem because he has a thing in his eye. 
Like, like it's, Jesus isn't saying that there's not a problem that needs to be addressed. He's saying, you're trying to address this problem, and yet you have this big, huge, gaping problem in your own life that maybe you should deal with before you go remove that. So he says, you hypocrite. First take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is your brother's eye. Now, can you imagine if I try to do like home surgery, removing this log out of my face and it takes weeks to remove? Do you think I'm going to be a little more humble going to Richard and say, hey, you got this little problem? Yesterday, I spoke at a lawn, like once a month, I speak to a bunch of cops and first responders and we were talking about an issue. And one of the guys says, how many of you guys have ever been um, charged with this? And he, he went like a bunch of stuff or like. All the way up to being investigated by a grand jury at a felony, felony case. And he's like, I have. And he looks at us, he's like, I had no business being a cop at 20, 20 years old. He's like, after 20 years of being a sheriff, I, I have a better understanding. And he's like, man, when me and my wife went through this big thing, she knew that I was a cop and she knew how to do so. She like called in domestic violence. And he's like, there I was in the back of the cop car, handcuffed, saying, dude, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And all I could, he's like, all I saw was the last 20 years of me looking at the dude in the backseat saying, yeah, whatever, dude, there's, you are guilty, whatever. And he's like, now that I had this happen to me, my whole perspective, I'm like, because of what I've been through, I'm a better cop now. He's like, now I have compassion. And he's a brand new baby Christian. And he's like, man, I had no business. And he's a big old boy. He's the boy in the story that kicked down the fence with me a few months ago that I, so I didn't have to climb over the fence. I was really thankful for that. But the, but the, the attitude that Jesus, like if we're honest with ourselves, if we really put ourselves before him and allow God's x-ray to examine us, man, we're, we're, we've been given a lot of forgiveness by God. And so when we do have to help our brothers that are in sin or doing something, it sure changes the condition of our heart. Another illustration I heard from a guy that was absolutely hilarious. Seeing some families, we're not doing it in our families, and definitely after the progressive dinner. But maybe after the progressive dinner, some people, maybe after last night's binging, there's a people, households, or friends that say, let's do a health kick. Let's go on a diet. Let's just eat carrot sticks for the next two months. And so you start out on this quest, just eating carrot sticks to try to drop weight. Then one of you comes home and you find that there's like a big old like gallon thing of ice cream. You eat 80% of it doused in Hershey syrup. Then you go and you find the old box of Girl Scout cookies. And then you eat all of the Girl Scout cookies. Then you find a case of Snickers bars and you eat halfway through. And about this time you're starting to get sick. I've been there. And you think, oh man, it, <laughs> it took my body to catch up a while with my brain. But now it's like not feeling good. And so you used to have caramel like all on your face. You quickly clean up all the evidence. And then your other friend, your spouse or your friend that you decided to do this one walks in the door. And they have like a little bit of peanut butter on their bread. And say, hey, 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 hey. We're on a diet here. <laughs> You're cheating. Like, that's what he's saying here. Like, this, I hope that makes sense. And so he's saying, humble yourselves, keep integrity, let be honest with who you are. Because when you're that servant that has been forgiven much, 
And then somebody owes you money, it changes everything how you treat them. And then he goes on to, to talk about this illustration of good fruit, bad fruit, trees, and that sort of thing. In Matthew seven fifteen, the Sermon on the Mount for the Jewish people, he references that this is false prophets. This is the teachers of the law. They have their Bibles, their scriptures, and they're, they're manipulating it. He's calling them out. And as I go through this, I, I recognize, one thing I recognize about fruit is fruit takes a long time to develop. When we moved to Valley Center three years ago, we must have got the only house that doesn't have, didn't have a single tree on the whole thing. And so then I've put in fruit trees, I've put in stuff, like all kind of fruit trees. And I'm just waiting, like we're springtime right now and I'm watering, watering, going, if I have more water, then bigger fruit will happen. And it's like, man, I'm like three years into this. And it's like, there's like my nectarine trees doing good to me. The grapes, which started from a little tree, are just now starting to come. I don't know if they're going to like really come. But fruit takes time. It takes time. And now my dad wants to move to Valley Center and wants to retire in his old age. And he wants us to get a granny flat with him and to get a house. And it's like, no. I mean, yeah, I'm saying, yes, of course. I love my dad. I'll care for him. But in my heart, I'm thinking, no. Like, I'm going to have to leave and give these fruit trees to the next muck that buys his house. Like, I'm just going to get good. Like, I'm going to try to put a clause in there. Like, I'll sell you the house, but for the next 15 years, I have rights to the fruit. <laughs> yeah. And I'll go into a house that doesn't have a single fruit tree. And I'll start all over and start investing. And he starts saying, for there's no good tree which produces bad fruit. Nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Trees get sick. Like being in Valley Center, like starting to talk with avocado farmers. Like you go to their land. It's hilarious. They like really talk about their trees like they're people. And like, like, you know, oh, this one, she's really sick. I've been trying to put some stuff into her root. And if she doesn't survive, I'm going to have to chop her. Like it's like, whoa, whoa. But they're like caring for them because if it's sick, it doesn't produce fruit. And so they do everything they can do to maintain the health of these trees. And Jesus is saying, listen, a good tree is not going to produce bad fruit. And a sick tree can't produce good fruit. See, what he's getting at is the condition of the hearts. Don't lose sight of this. And so a religious teacher, anybody can start speaking stuff. But if they're sick in their heart, it's not going to be of the Lord. He goes on to say, for men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from briar bush. Figs come from a fig tree. I tried to plant once. Gopher got it. Still upset over that. Grapes I'm waiting on. But can you imagine it's grape season? They're about there. Finally, you can start eating them. And then I run down to this field and I'm in the tumbleweed going, man, where are the grapes at? Where are the grapes? You don't go to a tumbleweed to find grapes. You don't go to sick teachers, and I'm not going to like start at this point, as much as I want to start calling out groups under religion that have so manipulated and distorted the scriptures. But what I'll say is whatever church you go to, it must be the Bible. The Bible must be taught. This is health. This is what God, this is what he's getting at. Not people say, no, 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 you're interpreting it wrong. It's not right. This is why you need to like stay in the word and keep me on my toes. Because I need to stay healthy. 
which I'll get to in a second. And he says, verse 45, he goes on to say, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. He's saying, listen, these guys are all external. They don't have redeemed hearts. They're not pure. And he's leading into this call to commitment. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, yet you don't follow me? You don't do what I say. Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to turn there. You don't necessarily have to or you can if you want to. But 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul, who is like the, he, after Christ died, he was the man that God raised up to, to take on, to give us most of the, the New Testament dealing with church. Why do we do church? In chapter 4, he looks at Timothy, this young guy who he was sent into a situation with all kind of problems. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it starts out by saying, But the Spirit says in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from food which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. He goes on to explain all of this stuff, these false teachers that are teaching things, that are sprouting up. And in verse 16, he points the finger to Timothy, this young man. And I take this one to my to, to aimed at me also. And all of you should do the same. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Paul tells Timothy, in light of this world that's cutting against, there's false teachers. They're going to come up. They're going to say things. They're going to be religions that say, oh, if you do this and distort what the Bible said. And he says, Timothy, what you need to do is you need to guard your own heart. Keep watch on yourself. Keep watch on your teaching. Teach sound doctrine. Be in the scriptures. Just teach faithfully. And as you do this, you're going to stay healthy and your flock is going to stay healthy. Seen a lot of guys go astray over the years. Friday night, I went to my seminary for an alumni banquet, and one of the professors had a great impact on me. I took one class with him. I had like eight weeks with him. And he told a story about how his library keeps him humble before the Lord. He says almost every day when he's in the library, before he starts to study the scriptures, he goes through his bookshelf and he just kind of looks at his books. I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. Is that book idolatry? (laughs) You know, trying to be, you know, the young whippersnapper. And he turns us, he's like, listen, most of my books came from guys that fell out of the ministry, guys that were in sin and pride. And when they get kicked out of the ministry, they don't need need their books. And so I look at the books and I see the, the faces of my friends that got puffed up and left the teaching. And that story stuck with me. And the last two weeks, I couldn't see this. The, the last two weeks, I couldn't see what was going to come. But I love Miss Pat. I need to call out Miss Pat today. I love her. She's feisty. She likes feisty girls. She sees a little feisty. And she's like, oh, I see myself in them. I love them. She cooks great. And she follows the leader that said, you know, you know, talk softly, but carry a big stick. She, she carries a big stick and she, she didn't like point it at me, but she lifted it up and it was definitely the presence was there. She's like, 
In all this media interviews, you better not be getting too big for your britches. <laughs> and I'm like, don't worry. Don't worry. She's like, because you better not be leaving us. And it's like, I'm not leaving. Like, it's crazy to me that in four days on the 20th, or five days, my math at public school, I, um, <laughs> I always, I always, five days is my 40th anniversary of being called to this church. And we're just like seeing fruit appear. It's exciting. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> amen. I, like, I won amen out of but but in this church, as we grow, see, I need to realize that my heart is humble before the Lord, that I'm allowing every week he fillets me open. And what I hear when people come to this church is like, man, you're pretty honest. You like kind of lay yourself out there. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm just I'm not I'm up. Literally, I'm on this stage because Fran's so short and she couldn't see me when it was just on the ground. It's not that I'm up here looking down with my bazooka taking people out like you did this. You did this. You did this. I'm just here as a Christian going through life, and God's called me to this rule. I'm not perfect. I'm on this journey with all of you. And as I look at this story, and as we end, I think that the, the main thing, please go with me to Ephesians. I think Ephesians is what we need to take to heart. First, the conditions of our heart. When I look at all of the, the Bible more than anything, God cares about the condition of your heart. All of us, you know, we've gone through a couple heart surgeries in our church. But all of us needed heart surgery. Our hearts are terribly wicked. And the only way that we could get new hearts is through Christ, through believing in him. And then the integrity of our heart is so important that we walk with the Lord as best we can. Nobody's perfect. And I love what Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 30 says, first, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not this cosmic force. Kind of, you know, Luke, I'm your father and, you know, be the force. He's God. It's a he. It's a person. And we're told in Ephesians chapter one that when you believed upon Christ at that moment, the spirit sealed you until the day, day of redemption to assure you of your walk with the Lord. And we're told that if we that if we live our lives as Christians with various things, we can actually grieve. Like this is the parent. Everybody who's a parent that has a child that's gone through a hard time, like you know grief. And God said, I'm your father. And when you go astray, you grieve me. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, let all bitterness. I've heard it said that bitterness is like swallowing poison and hoping that the other person dies. Did you catch that? Bitterness is like swallowing poison and then hoping that the other person dies. I'm on a, I'm on, I've been in warfare for the last three weeks. There's a gopher or a mole in the front of my yard and I cannot get him. I'm having to like up the ante to get him. He's getting close to my fruit trees and it's getting very dangerous. And I can't get him by the means I'm using, so I have to up it. And it would be like taking a gopher gasser, locking myself in my office, and then lighting it off, hoping that I get him. Like, that's what bitterness does to us. It kills us. And he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. 
Notice it all, 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 not 85%, not 95%, all of it. Let it be away from you. And what we're to do is we're to be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Like tender-hearted means that you've been forgiven much and you understand what it means to be forgiven so that when you have to go to somebody that you love to confront them because of their sin, that means your heart's very sensitive. Like when you have a wound and it still hurts, that's being tender and so when you go, you remember being just there. And so as you approach him, you're doing it with a tender heart. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. See, Jesus paid it all. And if you're a Christian, he did it all. It's not because of your good works. If you're living a good, righteous life today, it's only because of him. And I think that the thing that my father-in-law's little phrase that he said to me many years ago that, that has struck the biggest impact, which I think Jesus is addressing in Luke chapter 6 here, is that he wants us to hold ourselves, hold yourself to the highest biblical standard that you can and hold everybody else to the very lowest biblical standard. See, God wants you to focus on you. Lord, I want to live according to your word. Help me to see this. And then when we go to confront people or there's an issue that we have to deal with, it forces us to know the scripture says there's clear violation. Like, dude, you are having adultery with your wife and the Bible makes it very clear that this is wrong. It's not, you know, the Lord convicted me not to play golf and because, you know, well, I don't like golf, so it's a really bad one. It's not applying to me, but I'll use it. Like, don't play golf because you waste too much of your time. You're neglecting your family. You're doing all this stuff. Let's just say that's what God convicted me of. And then somebody goes to play a round of golf and I go to them shaking my finger. Golf is sin. Why are you golfing? How can you hang out with golfers? You're sinning. You shouldn't do that. Well, no, no. See, God might have convicted me in that area, but that's not in scripture. And God very well could convict you of things. But then to project your convictions on others is not what we're to do. Hope it makes sense. So let's pray. I got one nod. Father, I do uh, this. Thank you, Lord. Um, Lord, we sing songs about you paying it all to know that your death on the cross was sufficient for all of us, Lord. Lord, it's not about works. It's simply believing in you, which is more than we can fathom. Like it just doesn't make sense that all we have to do to be right with you is to trust upon you. That you paid it all. You paid for every sin, past, present and future. And Lord, our life with you is simply about obedience and out of love for you. And so, Father, I pray for each person here. There are some who maybe have not come to know you as Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help them along in their journey, that your spirit would guide them so that they can come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And, Father, for those of us who have believed, we haven't attained it. And as Paul said, we press on looking forward to the upward call in Christ Jesus. Lord, we press on. Father, we lay ourselves before you and ask that you would help us to see um, bitterness, wrath, clamor, anger, bitterness, things that we're hanging on to. Lord, help us to realize how much we've been forgiven of so that we can forgive. Father, we pray that we would display your grace in all areas of our life, Lord. Father, help us to take the opportunities that you give us each day. We love you, Lord. We praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.